0: Aloha Kako, and welcome to another episode of Native Stories. Owa lo kowino no papule no mo With me, Nanelo. So this episode is a part of our Treaty series, and today we have Myra Mizella Zamora, who is a member of the Pichakanga Band of Lucento Indians. She has grown up learning in her community, and in 2005, she received a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley. And she has worked for the Pechaconga Cultural Resource Center since 2005. And in 2013, she received a master's of arts in anthropology from the San Diego State University. Mizelle Zamora is currently the curator and archaeologist for the Pechaconga Cultural Resource Center. She has dedicated her life and career to cultural preservation, practice, and revitalization. In this episode, she will be discussing the California Treaty K, or the unratified California Treaty K of 1852. She will be sharing on who signed it, what happened during that time frame, where was it signed, when was it signed? Why was it signed? Has it been upheld today? And what were the circumstances around um, signing it?
1: So, palovamo um, eknai nonotun Myra Maciel non pachangawish no kapatafish atachi pu So, good morning, everyone. My name is Myra Maciel Zamora. Um, I'm from the Pachanga Band and my family clan names are Kapata Fish, Adachi, and Yuhak. So I'm joining you today from the Pechanga Indian Reservation, and we're located in California. We're about 60 miles uh, north of San Diego. So happy to be with all of you today to share some of our history with the California treaty. So the treaty That I'm going to talk about today is Treaty K. So it's also known as the Treaty of Temecula. And it's one of the 18 unratified treaties with California tribes that President Fillmore had submitted to the United States Senate in June of 1852. Um, And the treaty was written by the U.S., You in September, the year before in 1851, and the commissioner, Rosencraft, signed the Treaty of Temecula. He was one of the three commissioners that was appointed under the California Land Claims Act by the president at the time. And they authorized and funded the U.S. State Senate to negotiate treaties in the year of 1850. And the Treaty of Temecula is one of eighteen treaties that was presented um, in 1852. So this this treaty, you know, was recognized by all of our captains here in the valley, and the Treaty of Temecula um, was signed by all of our ceremonial leaders. So it wasn't just the people from Pechanga, but it it was a a larger group. Of tribes, it was ceremonial leaders from Coeira, from Capeno, uh, from Luceño, and from Serrano communities. And those those men were the ones that held the authority to speak and make decisions on behalf of the people at that time. And Treaty K was signed at Pablo Abush's house, which is um, now located um, across the river from our Vail Ranch headquarters here in Temecula. Um, and the men who signed the treaty uh, on our behalf that were living in the Temecula Valley was Captain Kapatapish of the Temecula Village and Captain Tosaval of the Tobin Village. And Captain Kapatapish, he was one of my great-great uncles, so one of my family members. But it, it's important to note that all the all of our ceremonial leaders at that time who came forward to sign the treaty on behalf of the people, you know, they all have a plus after their name because they weren't really allowed to sign it. They, they were, they were agreeing to this, but because of the, you know, racism and hierarchical system, um, the commissioner really took, took forth the actual signatory process. So if, you know, in this treaty, it would have granted all of um, our ancestors 2 million acres of land. Um, that also included farming equipment, cattle, clothing, uh, food rations. And that that list of food rations and a list of clothing, you know, that was the government's idea of what we needed at that time from the government's point of view to become this civilized people. You know, the the idea behind the written treaty was yes also to secure lands, but it was to create this civilized society for the indigenous people and this this standard way of being an American settler and building a ranch and farming. Um, and at that time, you know, our ceremonial leaders, they were, they were very concerned about having a secure land base for the people. They knew that, that there were many, many non-native people coming into our valleys and there was a lot more people here and they had a very different view of how to take care of the land, how to treat the land. And we had a very different, um, view of, of the relationships with each other. And knowing that, you know, our tribal leaders, they came together and they, they agreed that if we, you know, were to get these two million acres of land, that we would stay in this, you know, in these parcels of land and we would stop fighting with the settlers about, you know, building their ranches and take, you know, clear, clear, clear cutting some of our, our gathering areas. Cause everything was, at that time, everything was happening so quickly. And you have this huge influx of population of non-native people coming into the valley. Um, and it was a lot, you know, it was a lot. And I just, I want to read off the list for the, the supplies that were that were promised. I think it's it's not easy to understand when you say just you know farming equipment was provided and we are giving you supplies, and that that doesn't really stick in people's minds. But when you you look into the list and really deconstruct um, what they were giving, what the United States had agreed to give, I think it's a little easier to understand the mindset and what they needed. So the supplies that were um, negotiated in the treaty was 4,156 cows and oxen, 157 horses and mules, 350 sacks of flour, one set of clothing for each person, one blanket for each adult, 8,700 yards of fabric, 70 pounds of thread, 48 pairs of scissors, 168 thimbles, 5,000 needles, 13,000 pounds of iron and steel, 42 plows, 340 hoes, 140 shovels, and 20 grinding stones. And that list is within the treaty. It's within the notes. And that's not a lot. Um you know, the promises within the treaty. And at that time, you know, our ceremonial leaders, they weren't really focused on the amount of supplies that were given. They were focused on securing that land base for the people. But as you're hearing that list of supplies, you see, you begin to see the mindset of the time um, and the way that the U.S. government was seeing the land only as a resource you know it, it was a land it was the mindset of the land is for you for profit and when you look at that mindset and you have that relationship with the land it's it's just very different for for the native for our indigenous people you know we look at the land and she is a living person you know, she has a name. her name is Tamayowit. She, she's our earth mother. Um, you know she's the one who created the earth for the people and for all the animals and plants and the rocks and rivers and everything that we have around us today and she's alive. you know it's a living being and you treat her just like you treat any person and the the failures of that to see the land that the land is alive, and the the failures in the government's understanding at that time, that the land was was birthed, and that you know we know that our creation took place here in Temecula. We know that we don't have stories of migration. Um, we know we're the original people that were here. So, it, knowing that, and knowing the relationship that we have with the land, and then seeing how the U.S. government has a very different relationship with the land. Um, I feel like at that time in the 1850s, that was the biggest uh, language barrier because it's a different understanding of the translation of the word land and what that means for somebody who's non-native and then for someone who is who is native and who is from this land and you say land and you think of our mother, you think of Tamayo, you think of the earth, um, you think of the relationships and those cycles that she gave us. And then in turn, you think of your, your human responsibility for care. And during this time, that, that dramatic difference in the colonial mindset of what, The land means for the U.S. government, the non-native people, and what land means for Native people. um, I feel was the biggest um, obstacle at that time, and it was only about you know physical resources and physical land. Um, Because as a as a Pechanga person, and we're you know living here in the Temecula Valley, you know I'm very grateful to be living on the land. That we were created from. You know, we have this long history of of creation here that goes back to the beginning of time. And those connections can be very difficult for the US government to understand because, unfortunately, they don't share that connection. I think in modern times now, there's more of an acknowledgement for it, but in the 1850s, you have to really think about the mindset and what and how the US government and the treatment that Native people were receiving from the U.S. government. You know, it was a a mindset that, you know, we're wards of the government and we have to be taken care of, and like a child. Um, We weren't treated as equals. We weren't treated um, fairly. We weren't on that same level as our own governmental system that we had for you know, thousands of years, because the U.S. governmental system, you know, was hierarchically, you know, higher, and you know when you put that human element into the treaty and the reasons why it was never signed, I think it's easier to understand. Because after the treaty was signed and all of our ceremonial leaders agreed, uh, you know, federal authorities and the and the government. You know, they they deliberately um, hid the treaty. They failed to inform all of our ancestors that it was never signed, that the U.S. Senate had not only not signed it, but they rejected the treaty. And they ordered it to be held in this secrecy for over 50 years. So I always think about our ancestors and how they felt. Um, knowing that they were signing in good faith and agreeing to a secure land base for the people and then never, never hearing a follow up from the U.S. government that, you know, this was a valid, um, that this agreement was in place and that everything was going to be okay. Instead, it was the U.S., you know, state senate, um, ordering it for to be held in secret. And our ancestors, you know, they they believed in the U.S. government at the time. They believed that they would keep their promise once a treaty was signed. But this did not happen. You know, and as a result, at, at that time, our ancestors, they were left vulnerable to abuse. They were left to be subject to this, you know, huge wave of encroachment by white settlers and the various lawmakers throughout the region that were, you know, coming in, coming into the valley in what seemed like a land grab. Um, but when so many people come into your home at one time and all of those people have a very different mindset of how they use the land, we're just very different from one another. You know, it creates this... Um, hostile and creates turmoil within the relationships with each other. And then, and once the treaty was signed, you know, in good faith by, by our federal leaders, uh, you know, that was held in secrecy for 50 years. And then after that 50 years, the Treaty of Temecula did become available. Um, but It wasn't in the actual public domain until 1905. So you have this period of, you know, between the 1850s and the turn of the century. Fifty years is a long time to keep something in secret and to be fighting over land and loss of land. And during this period, you know, hundreds of Native people um, lost their lives hundreds of, of lands were lost you know we ourselves here at Pechanga, we were subject to an eviction during this time and many of the many of the tribes around that surround us and the clans that surround us were also subject to evictions by the government either by the California state government or the US federal government it was a really really uh, challenging and very difficult time for people here in California And, you know, unfortunately, by the turn of the century, you know, most of the land that our ancestors had occupied forever had already been lost to the American settlers. And without that protection that the treaty was, you know, promising to provide, you know, California Indian people across California and here in our valley, you know, there was no... There was, we had no legal right to be living on any land. And that legal right, that's why we had our eviction in 1875, because we had no legal right to occupy the land. You know, they wanted us to pay taxes on the land just like any other non-native landowner at that time. And there was no, you know, no federal acknowledgement for a tribe's legal right to even exist Uh, There was no acknowledgement that we were the first uh, original people here. And that's one of the, I feel that's one of the reasons why, you know, the Senate ordered for the treaty to go in hiding. And it wasn't just ours. It was, you know, 17 others. They were all held in secret for 15 years. And I think about, you know, those 18 treaties. And what comes to my mind is the people and the people's families and the ones that are living today and how the, those relationships with the government, how the trust and the mistrust has trickled down into so much trauma with Californian people and how the start of 1850 and now current times, the history in California for native people you know, it's very somber. It's it, for me, it's very in a survival mode of history. And during these times, you know, there was extermination that was legalized, and enslavement, and boarding schools, and um, so many methods of control for Native people. And they were very a uh, governmental and organized uh, fashion. So they're in our history books and they're they're part of our history now. But we really need to consider that personal element and the feelings and how those histories that short, you know, the 160 time period of history and how that's still continuing to affect our communities today. That inherent trauma is still coming down. And we're still continuing to deal with and work through and heal and heal all of these traumas. And while our tribal homelands, you know, they were restored by executive order in 1882, Um, you know, in California, at already at that time in 1882, there were millions of acres of land that were already gained by the state. They were already occupied by non native individuals. Um, they were occupied by big corporations who were, you know, gaining titles from the state between the eighteen fifties and nineteen hundreds. And you know, what was left in eighteen eighty two for Pachanga, for the Pachanga Reservation to get established, it was the land no one wanted. It was the land that was left in the Temecula Valley that didn't have water running all the time. That didn't have the resources. Um, it was the land that didn't have, you know, ideal farmland. But at that time, our tribal leaders, um, you know, our focus was still securing a safe land base. I can't imagine how they felt not being safe to be in your home. And I think about that all the time. And every day I'm so grateful that our ancestors uh, survived so that we could be here, so that I could talk to you today. I'm so grateful that they pushed through all of those hard times, all those scary times. Um, they survived for us so that we would keep going, so that our cycles would keep going. You know, I have a grandmother who's gonna be 98 this year. I'm so grateful for her, so grateful for her mother and her grandmother. Um, that they were brave enough, that they were strong to push through these hard times, and so strong that now we don't have to be scared to be in our homes, that we have a secure place, um, that we have a land base, that we're thriving now because of them, because of their strength.
0: Mahalo for sharing with us. For everyone listening, please stay tuned for the next episode of Native Stories for our treaty series. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Native Stories, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews helps us to get new listeners, grow the show, and helps us to keep putting on new content that you enjoy. You can follow us on Facebook, just search Native Stories, or on Instagram, search our O-U-R Native Stories. And if you want to get in contact with Myra or learn more about this treaty, We will be putting that information in the description. And mahalo nui for tuning in, and a huiho, ame e